0: Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of Crime, Tea and Me. I'm your host Charlotte. Here on Crime, Tea and Me, I sit down with a nice cuppa and sometimes some biscuits and talk about all things crime, from murderers to bank robbers and everything in between. So grab yourself a nice cup of tea and come and join me. On today's episode we're going to look at the Hungerford Massacre. Now, I will warn you, this episode is probably going to be quite long, but it's just because so many things happened and I want to get all the facts right and tell you everything about it basically. It can also be quite graphic in some parts. So, if that isn't your kind of cup of tea, then maybe this isn't the best podcast for you. Right. So, Hungerford is a very small town in between Bristol and Reading. And the reason I say they're really small is because the last census that was taken, which was 2019, um, there was only like 6,000 people that lived there. So it is a really, really small place. I grew up in Birmingham and that is, that is a massive city. So hearing that somewhere has only got 6,000 people in, like to me, it would feel like quite a safe place to be because it's so small. Michael Robert Ryan was born on the 18th of May in 1960 at Savernake Hospital which is just outside of Hungerford. So normally in the 60s you would get married and settle down in like your early 20s but Michael's parents didn't do that they didn't have children in their 20s his father, who was called Alfred Henry Ryan, was 55 when Michael was born, and his mom, Dorothy, was 34. His dad worked as a government building inspector, and his mom was a dinner lady in the local primary school in Hungerford. and after she finished working there, she ended up moving on, and she became well, she began working in the hotel. Everyone in his family said that Michael was a really, really quiet kid. He would spend most of his time playing with his action man. And even when he went to school, like, it didn't bring anything out in him. Like, he didn't, you know, open up to the other kids. He still stayed quite quiet. And when he moved into high school, this really, really became a problem. Like, he would get bullied and things for being so quiet. And normally some kids will sort of fight back when they're getting bullied, but Michael didn't. He just stayed really, really quiet, kept himself to himself. And he actually ended up starting to skip school quite a few times. He wasn't really academic as such, uh, but when he did finish school, he went to college. And that was to learn how to become a building contractor. So he wanted to follow in his father's footsteps type of thing. But It really was not for him and he ended up leaving the course and taking a job at the local girls school as a caretaker, which is like a janitor, so cleaning up um, at the beginning of the day and the end of the night and things like that. Michael was Dorothy's only son and she sort of put him on a pedestal like he could do no wrong. I think because she was an older mum she may have seen Michael as like her last chance to have a child so she was just going to spoil him any way that she could and Dorothy was actually the person that brought Michael his first gun. Now I personally know nothing about guns so I did have to do some research into this to understand them a little bit more. So this first gun brought by his mum was an air rifle and when he was old enough, he ended up buying himself a shotgun. And this started a bit of a fascination for him. He really, really got into guns, and he started to become a bit of a good gun collector. And he even went as far as having a glass cabinet in his room, where he could display all of his guns. This isn't like nowadays in England, like nowadays in England, like you you don't see that. But in the 60s and things, this was something that was quite freely available that you could like go and find guns. So it's really weird to me to think that he would have this like glass cabinet in his bedroom full of them. Like what? <laughs> Seriously? But I think it's just because like I've not grown up with that kind of in that kind of environment so the guns seemed to give him a bit of a full sense of who he was like he thought that with these guns it made him better so people wouldn't mess with him because he had these guns you know it seemed like he was a lot more than he was because he had these guns like it made him really confident It was around this time that Michael started to change his behaviour, like he would start openly lying to people that he knew and people that had known him his entire life. He started to tell people that he owned his own gun shop, that he was engaged and he even started to tell people that he was in the 2nd Parachute Regiment in the army but no one ever believed him. Like these are the people that you've grown up with. Like they're going to know who you are, what you do. Like I said, Hungerford is not a big place. So all of these people that have gone to school with you, they're going to know what you're like and what your life is and what it isn't. So they're going to know that you're lying. And he would get so angry that everyone wouldn't believe his lies. And his mom ended up, Saying to people, no, 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 it's it's true. Yeah, yeah, it's all true. Yeah, yeah, he totally owns a gun shop. Yeah, he's definitely engaged. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's in the army. And I think that goes back to her having only the one child, like, Michael being it for her, and he was her, like, her whole life. So I think that's probably why she did it. But to me... Like I said, I've, I've, I'm no, like, psychiatrist or psychologist or anything like that. But I genuinely think that Michael may have been a pathological liar. Because these kind of people who have this, like, need to lie will get really angry. And, like, they will just completely switch if they feel like people don't believe what they're saying. So... Yeah, this is just what I think, obviously. You know, some people may disagree with me, but it's just, yeah, I think that he was more than likely a pathological liar. So I'm going to push forward... So, I'm going to jump forward to the morning of the 19th of August in 1987. So, this is when Michael is around about 27 years old. He went into Savenake Forest, which is just outside of Hungerford. And here he ran into a woman called Susan Godfrey and her two children, Hannah, who was four, and James, who was just two. And they'd stopped there to have a little picnic around about half twelve. Michael pulled out his gun and held it at Susan. He made Susan put her two children back in the car and then he forced her into the woods. Here is where all of the graphic details start because this is the start of the massacre. Michael ended up shooting Susan 13 times. Later, when the pathologists did tests and things, it showed that the first three shots would have killed her. But Michael just carried on shooting. After he did that, he walked off, got into his car and drove straight off. He's just this despicable person. Because he's leaving these two young children in a car on their own. Where they've just heard like gunshots from a man who's just walked into the woods with their mum. And then they've seen this man just walk out of the woods, get in his car and drive off, like, these two poor kids have have pretty much witnessed their mum having her life ended, and, oh, it's, I'm already getting wound up with him, seriously, <laughs> I'm just, yeah, I'm, yeah, getting wound up, so, eventually, Hannah, again, as I said, she was four years old, Hannah got out of the car and started walking away with James and they came across a lady called Myra Rose and they told her that they thought that their mummy had just been shot. She didn't believe them and she said that she would help them find their mummy and they walked back to the car. By the time they got back to Susan's car, a police officer had found the car and he Walked around the area, you know, trying to see if he could find someone that owned the car. And he was the one that found Susan's body. It was 250 feet away from her car. By the time the police had found Susan, Michael had already obviously driven off, like I said, and he was arriving at a local petrol station. And the attendant that was there, recognized him. She she didn't know him by name, but she knew that he was a regular customer. So she filled up one of the other customers' cars, who was on a motorcycle, and then she walked back into the shop. The motorcyclist was obviously waiting to leave. Michael got out of his car and took out a semi-automatic rifle and he aimed it at the petrol pump attendant who was called Mrs Dean. She dropped to the floor, hiding behind the till area. The motorcyclist drove off, obviously trying to save themselves, and Michael just completely opened fire on the shop. The bullets were hitting the glass over the counter and bouncing into the shops. It was bouncing back off. It was, yeah, it was it was terrible. Really, really was. Michael then stopped, walked into the shop and Mrs Dean, who was behind the counter, begged him not to kill her. He aimed the rifle right at her and shot, but nothing happened. He pulled the trigger two more times and still nothing happened. So he turned around, walked out of the shop, got in his car and drove off. And straight away Mrs Dean called the police and then she called her husband. The police already knew that this had happened because the motorcyclist who had driven off had reported Michael straight away. So by 12.45, so this is only 15 minutes after Michael had killed Susan he arrived at his own home and that was number four Southview in Hungerford. By this time, his dad had sadly passed away. So it was just Michael and his mum that were living in his house. His neighbours would go on to say that they'd heard shots being fired from the house and it was later put down to the fact that Michael had walked into the house and shot the family dog. Hmm as a dog owner, like, yeah, I'm, I am one of those people who will watch a complete and utter horror film and I'll be fine. But oh, anything happens to a dog and I am like, no, how can you do that? I'm terrible. It just, yeah, I just don't get it. I don't get how people can do it. Like they're innocent animals. Um, so he left the house and he tried to start his car, but it wouldn't work. So he kept trying and trying and nothing would happen. So eventually he gave up. He walked to the back of the car and shot the boot three times. Why he did this, I have no clue at all. But then he walked back into his house and used a five litre barrel of petrol. And he just set fire to his house. Yep, because that's what you're doing. Like, honestly, I don't know what was going through his head. So after he'd set fire to the house, he picked up some more of, gu- some more of the guns that he had. And again, I had to research these guns. I, I had no clue what they were. So he picked up, let me see, he picked up a semi-automatic rifle, an AK-47 and a semi-automatic pistol. He took a load of the bullets and just started walking down the road. He ended up walking past some of his neighbours. And this is where he had grown up his his entire life. So he knew people. And he met some of his neighbours called Roland and Sheila Mason. And without a second thought, he just opened fire at them. He ended up shooting Roland six times and Sheila once and sadly they both died instantly. Now I want to say I am a full out and out snoop. If I hear anything in my area like uh, an argument or you know anything like that I I hold my hands up I'm the first person at the window moving the curtains and looking out to see what was going on and I am pretty sure that Michael's neighbours were no different because he and his mother lived near a woman called Marjorie Jackson and she was looking through her windows She saw Michael running up and down the street using anything that moved as a target practice. And sadly for her, Michael saw her watching him. He shot her through her window, but thankfully she wasn't seriously injured. Other people that saw Michael would go on to say that they saw him telling children to go home and hide. So... Right now, he is, you know, it's purely going after adults. Like, he he isn't going after children. Like, he's telling them to go home and hide. Dorothy Smith was a 77-year-old woman and is honestly my new hero. I'm not going to lie. She walked out of her house and started yelling at Michael. And she said, is that you making all that noise? You're frightening everyone to death. Stop it, you stupid bugger. And Michael turned towards her, and when I was reading up on this, I was like, "Oh my God, don't, 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 don't do it, don't do it, don't do it," because this woman's amazing. Like, don't do it. But he just turned, looked at her, smiled, and walked off down the down the footpath. Like he left her, and I, yeah, I like I said, this woman is my new idol. Like, yeah, I, I, I would love to be able to do that. Like, what are you doing? What are you making all that noise for? Not, stop shooting people, just, what are you making all the noise for? Lisa Mildenhall, I think I'm pronouncing that right, was just 14 years old at the time. And Michael found her crouching down outside of her front door. He stood right over her, smiled, and then shot her four times. She managed to crawl back into a house and her mother called the ambulance And tried to get someone to come out and help them. And thankfully Lisa did survive. But at the same time. Another gentleman called Kenneth Clements. And his family were walking down the footpath. Michael walked up. And shot Kenneth at point blank range. Most of his family managed to run away. But his son ended up climbing over the fence. And he found himself in the school that was just next to the footpath and he he just ran, ran for his life. So with the reports from the petrol station and then people around Michael's house phoning the ambulances and police and things like that, Hungerford was now crawling with police They were getting call after call after call from members of the public, telling them where Michael was and they managed to scramble a helicopter and get it to track him down and try and follow him. The helicopter managed to see where Michael was going and they spoke to the police and got a roadblock put up, but I don't know how this happens, but... Some cars still managed to get through this roadblock. And one of these cars was a police officer called PC Roger. And again, I'm really sorry if I say this wrong. Brayton. He saw Michael. And Michael just completely opened fire on the car with his semi-automatic rifle. And right there and then Roger died. Linda Chapman and her daughter Alison managed to get through the roadblock as well. When they came across Michael, he once again shot the car but thankfully both of them survived. But a bullet unfortunately managed to travel through through Alison's body and she was left permanently disabled. Michael then left the area and walked down Fairview Road and here he bumped into an 84 year old man called abdul khan he was outside his house mowing his lawn minding his own business you know like doing like an everyday thing really michael just walked up to him and shot him three times and abdul sadly later died of his injuries alan leapt it. Had been told about the shooting in the area, and he had managed to make it past some of the roadblocks because inside there was where his family lived, and he was worried about them, he wanted to get through, he wanted to see how his family was, but he ran straight into Michael, and Alan knew who he was because, as I told you before, the bookcase in Michael's room that he was using the the, well not the bookcase sorry the glass case that Michael was using for his guns Alan had actually like put together for him so Alan knew who he was Michael tried to run off and he ended up turning around and shot Alan three times but thankfully he he wasn't killed The emergency services were trying to get to as many victims as possible and as one of the ambulances managed to get through the roadblocks, they came face to face with Michael. He shot them through the windscreen. One of the paramedics, Hazel Haslett, was hurt from the broken glass that was obviously broken when the bullet came through the window and Linda Bright which was the ambulance driver reversed the ambulance and drove off one of the problems that the victims and the families faced was the fact that because of they had because they had the cordon all around Hungerford they weren't really allowing any police or ambulances or anything to go into the village so all of these victims were here in their homes, outside, you know, panicking, really, really scared. Like, these families were so scared that they were going to lose their loved ones. And because Michael still wasn't caught, no ambulances could go in because otherwise what happened to Linda and to Hazel would happen exactly the same to anyone else. Michael's house was obviously sound fire by him. And by this time now, the house next to it had also caught on fire. Now, earlier I told you about Marjorie Jackson, who Michael had shot through her window. She called her husband, who was called Ivor, and she told him what had happened. And he was at work. A colleague of his, called George White, said that he would drive him home to make sure that Marjorie was okay. So they jumped in his car and drove straight home. But Michael doubled back. And as they were coming around the corner to go to the house, they drove straight into him. Michael shot the car 11 times. And they ended up crashing the car straight into... PC Roger Burton's car, George died instantly and Ivor thankfully managed to survive just after the crash who would come home but Dorothy Ryan, Michael's mum. I can't even think about how horrible that would have been like just turning the corner of my road and seeing just complete mayhem people hurt cars crashed like oh, it must have been like a worse nightmare completely to come home and see your home on fire your neighbor's homes on fire like oh, it must honestly like it must have just been like a nightmare she ran over to George White's car And she saw Ivor, who obviously she would have known because he's one of her neighbours. She ran straight to her home and saw Michael stood there with guns in his hands. And she yelled, stop, Michael, why are you doing this? Michael just stood there, looked at his mum and then shot her three times. He then walked up to her, stood over her and shot her again she she died right there like it just ugh. like i i love true crime, I really do, but this oh this proper get to this gets to me it really really does like how you can do all of this and to top it off like like murder your own mother it's oh i just yeah. I'm genuinely lost for words, and I'm never lost for words. By 1.30, the Tactical Firearms Unit had been called in, and even though they had the helicopter overhead and they were trying to track Michael as much as they could, none of the local police would go anywhere near it because they were all unarmed. So they had to wait for the Tactical Firearms Unit. They were able to try and track Michael down and stop him. Another one of Michael's neighbours called Betty Tolliday had come out of a house because she thought that the bangs that she was hearing were kids messing about with fireworks and she was going to go and tell them to stop again. Betty, another one of my heroes. (laughs) So she walked out of a house and saw Michael... He looked at her, shot her once, and this managed to go straight through her sciatic nerve. But with some luck, Betty managed to survive. Francis Butler, who was just 26, was then walking his dog through the memorial park when he saw Michael. And he shot him straight away with an AK-47. And Francis died in the garden. Michael's 10th victim was Marcus Bernard. And he was driving to the local hospital because his wife had just given birth to their child. When Michael saw him, he shot him straight in the head. He killed him instantly. And this really, really gets to me because this poor guy was just going to hospital to meet his new child. To pick up his wife and... You know, he's just he's just going on about his every day. Like it would have been like the most the best day of his life, probably going to see his child, and this absolute sicko, like just murders him. And it's oh, I don't I don't know why this this case just gets to me so much as opposed to any other, but it really does. So Michael then started walking towards town. He shot a man on the way. who was injured. Michael's next victim had a bit of a weird connection to him. They were Douglas and Kathleen Wainwright and they were in their car. Douglas was shot twice and died and Kathleen was shot once and survived. But the connection was that their son was the police officer that granted Michael a licence to own a gun. And I can't even imagine how that police officer felt when he heard that news and found out that he was the reason that this absolute monster was able to have these guns, like... Yeah, the guilt. Which he shouldn't feel at all. Like, he, this man should not feel guilty. He was doing his job. He gave someone who he thought would be responsible with guns a gun licence. John Storms was a washing machine engineer. And he had driven into the area that day to come and fix some washing machines. So, he managed to get through these road barriers which by now I think is absolutely ridiculous like they know what's going on inside this tiny village and yet people are still managing to get through these like barriers how are they doing it what are the police doing seriously John end up being shot through the jaw and a man called Bobby Barkley saw what had happened he ran out of his house pulled John out of the car and managed to drag him into his garden to safety and I I just I think if it wasn't for Bob John would have died and like I was saying earlier about like Betty and things like yeah Bob is another one of my heroes so with the roads still not being cordoned off properly two other workers called Eric Vardy and Steve Ball drove their vans through Hungerford. They were going to a builder's yard and they came straight into Michael. He shot the van and hit Eric who was sadly, unfortunately, he died later that day in hospital. Michael then... Walked off down the road, um, going to a place called Priory Road, and he found a woman called Sandra Hill. She was a normal 22 year old woman in a car, blasting a music, and Michael just shot her and she died instantly. Something then switched in Michael. He saw a house, and after shooting the door open, he found a married couple, Victor. And Myrtle Gibbs. Myrtle was in a wheelchair so her husband jumped straight on top of her and managed to protect her and Michael shot him. Victor died straight away unfortunately and Myrtle later died in hospital. He then went upstairs and shot more people from inside the Gibbs's house. Ian Playle and his family were going to do some shopping and from the Gibbs's home Michael shot him and he sadly died but thankfully none of his family were hurt. He then also saw a man standing in his garden doing what any other person anywhere in the world would do every day just stand in your garden This man's name was George Noon and he was at his son's house and he was shot but thankfully he survived. Around 2pm Michael then left the Gibbs' home and he walked down towards his old high school. He managed to hold up in the school until the police got there and they spoke to a negotiator who came and was able to talk to Michael He said when he was talking to Michael that it was very strange because he seemed calm and he was able to hold a conversation. Which is weird for me to think, like, you've just killed and injured all of these people but you can sit and have a normal conversation with someone, like, what kind of person are you? At around 6.45 that evening, Michael said, it's funny. I shot all those people, but I haven't got the guts to blow my own brains out. I think I'm not the only one who would think this, but if you would have done that at the beginning of this day, it would have saved so many people's lives. Like, yeah. I, I, obviously I don't, I'm not advocating suicide. But when it comes to... You walking around, killing all of these people, and then saying, Oh, I can do it to everyone else, but I can't do it to myself. (sighs) At 6.52pm, a single gunshot was heard. The police managed to get inside the school, and they found Michael dead. Altogether, he had injured 15 people and killed 16 one of which was his mother. After the massacre, the Prime Minister at the time, Margaret Thatcher, visited Hungerford and met some of the victims and their families. The Queen even made a statement about what had happened. After an inquest into what happened and why, the Firearms Amended Act of 1988 was put into force. And that meant that even up to today, Everyone is banned from owning a semi-automatic centre-fire rifle and restricted the use of of shotguns. The police looked into why Michael did what he did and a child therapist, Dr Gregory Moffitt, put the reason down to it being him being bullied at school. For me, I think it also has to do with his mental health, I think that he was getting what he wanted from his mother, who was constantly giving him everything, because you know, like he was her he was he was her rainbow baby. She would have done anything for him. And when people started questioning his lies and things, even though his mum was sticking up for him, he just yeah, he just didn't like the fact that people were not believing him. So, that was the Hungerford Massacre. I think that Michael was a very disturbed man who had a stupid obsession with guns and a mum who would have never said no to him in a million years. It was definitely something that could and should have been prevented if only his mother would have spoken to someone about the fact that he was lying and would have gotten him the help that he actually needed. The only positive thing that I can think of that came out of this whole tragedy was the fact that the gun laws in the UK changed. There was also another update to the gun laws in 1997 after the Dunblane massacre. And if anyone wants me to look into the Dunblane massacre, just let me know. But after that massacre the private ownership of all cartridge ammunition handguns in the UK was banned. So therefore, you could, you could no longer own a cartridge ammunition handgun. So, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. And I really do hope that you liked it as, as much as you can, like a massacre. If you want to hear more from me, you can follow and subscribe to my podcast and you can also follow me over on Instagram at Crime Tea and Me. My next episode is going to be looking into the murder of Shafilia Ahmed, who was from the northwest town of Warrington, which you can listen to right away. So till next time guys, thank you so much for listening to Crime Tea and me. Bye!